Hello, 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 and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we interview executives in the data science space to get their lessons learned and their tips on how you can improve your career. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for joining once again and very happy, happy new year. Welcome to 2020. I hope this is going to be a wonderful year for you. To kick off this year, we have another great, great interview, this time with David Thomas. Until recently, he was the Chief Data and Analytics Officer for Bank of New Zealand, obviously based in New Zealand. This bank is a subsidiary of the National Australia Bank from Australia. And David spent a few years as Chief Analytics Officer and also Chief Data and Analytics Officer. I had a blast speaking with Dave. As you'll hear through his story, it's amazing. You'll hear how he goes. He went from being an owner of fast food franchises, especially pizza. So he had pizza shops and he went from that, studied decision sciences, became a management consultant, became head of strategy, used his knowledge from business performance, from running his businesses, went and did a postgraduate degree in decision sciences and got got into the analytics space, honed that and combined all of his strengths into the very challenging role that is the chief data and analytics officer. And he is very candid with what he shares from his experiences. I love speaking with him. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Here's the conversation with David Thomas. This is Felipe. I'm sitting with David Thomas, DT. Thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, no, really well. Happy, lovely sunny day here. Been out with the kids already, having a blast. Amazing. Now, Auckland is a beautiful, beautiful spot. Mate, uh, to get us kicked off, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your very interesting background. I know that there's some business ownership in there. There's some strategy work then leading to CAO roles, CDO roles. Can you give us a bit of an overview of how that happened? Yeah, so you're right. It's not a murder mystery. I ended up as a CDAO for Bank of New Zealand, which is a subsidiary of National Australia Bank. So the last row I had was a CDAO for BNZ, and I was also on the data leadership team for NAB as well. Great mm. role. Fabulous role. You'd said to me that was the role I was heading for, say, 25 years ago when I owned pizza stores. It would be, how the hell do you do that? A few things that I'll probably touch <laughs> on, and, and it's certainly a non-linear path, but I think it's important if you look at the piece of the puzzle and how they come together. So the first thing is always love puzzles. Love puzzles, love numbers, think they're fantastic, love exploring new ideas and opportunities. And probably the other foundation that's mm. really shaped me was both my parents. One was a builder and one was a teacher. So mm. love to build stuff and love to learn. So you change over time, and but those foundations, those three foundations around puzzles, building and teaching have always been there. So yes, did uh, spend 12 years in pizzas, owning stores and managing stores. Probably the biggest lessons from there 
was got a really good understanding if you measured things you could get better all the mm. time like good experiencing leading people i think at one point i had up to 50 people across a few sites got a good understanding of if you measured and doing time and motion studies and tracking all your calls how many orders were you getting down to half hour increments and getting your rostering more sophisticated and looking at throughput on a busy friday night in one of the stores we could have 15 cars on the road if you're not measuring that yeah you're in trouble and and just to just to make it challenging for ourselves i've always been of the nature you can learn from others and you don't have to stub your own toe to take the lessons on and at the time and probably still is you know pizza it was the states that the states own pizza they were the best and and it was like what could we learn out of there so in the mid 90s i was introducing u.s developed point of sale systems where they also had Mm. crm built in so with this pattern where customers would phone up and using caller ID, we'd enter in their phone number. A Friday night call could be, hey, Felipe, lovely to talk to you again. Would you like the same as last week? Bang. Okay, cool. And that was easy and we're running our direct marketing offer. And it's the 90s, you know, I look around today yeah. and people at CRM and I'm like, well, we're doing this 25 years ago. This isn't hard <laughs> stuff. But the other thing that really I learned learning out there is in New Zealand, as you know, as a pimple at the bottom of the world, lovely place, but quiet. And I wanted to try the Domino's 30-minute guarantee. So I did. And uh, we basically ran, if your pizza wasn't at your door in 30 minutes, it was going to be half price. And oh. to measure the hell out of everything to do that, I still remember the busiest half hour period we ever had with 75 delivery orders come in in a half hour period. And you're trying to get there in 30 minutes. It was the time there was cheese and toppings going everywhere but you built, built the system and measured the hell out of it so you could do it and I think the biggest lesson from that is this understanding that you can fundamentally learn from measuring stuff and take people with you like everybody in the organization knew what we were trying to do and they were often kids either at secondary school or tertiary education but they understood what we were about and we, and we started these conversations about if somebody was ordering a pizza from you at 8 30 at night they may have had an absolute crap day and you just got to make it as seamless as possible and try to make it work and and i often reflect on that time and not a lot's changed around what customers want and how they think and bells and whistles have got a bit better but the principles are still the same so after doing that for a dozen years, I went away and decided to reset my education and did my postgrad studies. And again, this is cyclical. And, and I think you and I have talked about Cassie from Google and her decision intelligence stuff. And, and I basically yes. spent two and a half, three years back at university learning the foundations of what are now decision intelligence. Mm. So I studied Carl Vake and his work in sense making. I did Tavisky and Kahneman and Kahneman's Thinking Fast and mm-hmm. Slow, Gary Klein and Naturalistic Decision Making, Helga Drummond, thought about environmental scanning. And then there was all the academic part of it and learning yeah. the, the theory. And then for my thesis year, I spent 142 hours watching teams making decisions. 
that's just set me up for my career in terms of running the likes of BI teams or business performance teams or strategy okay. teams that I fundamentally spent two years watching individual and team decision making. And how does that work and how does that play together? And it's fabulous now to see Cassie talking the language because I'm like, oh, yeah, I've studied yeah. that. I can play. <laughs> yes. I don't think there's uh, many New Zealand-based uh, organizations that will replicate Google and put in a chief decision officer, but, but hey. <laughs> Exactly. And what were the things that you found during your doing your thesis or what were you looking for? How was that time? Yeah. I suppose the thing that surprised me the most is team, I started talking about the cues and clues. So they were looking for clues. They were looking for numbers and hard numbers and facts and things like that. But the cue side of it became almost as powerful that they were imposing meaning uh-huh. and interpreting and doing it in a group environment. And this is a turn of the century uh, study. So, so some of it's in terms of case study changed a wee bit but those that wanted to be differentiated that also they'd say oh we want to be like sony you know high quality top end products and it literally got into what would sony do and i'm sitting there Mm. watching these people and i'm like you're imposing meeting and one of the biggest lessons of my career is context counts, whether it's data or analytics or strategy. Mm. And here you're literally watching groups imposing meetings. And I think um, also the tools they used to do it was quite interesting. And I was lucky enough, one of the lecturers gave me an old thesis for a student, I can't remember their name, but they had studied decision-making as well. But they had looked at the tools, strategic decision-making, and they found the tool that you use, depending on when you did your MBA. Mm. <laughs> so, so, you know, if you've got a hammer, every problem's a nail, right? But it literally, you could watch groups and they would do this. And my experience was not only when I was researching and studying, but mm. since I've carried that hypothesis. And basically what I found is people get into an area based on what they've read and seen and, and what they've imposed on that. And they're very comfortable there. And then not only as an individual, but as a group, and often the role of analytics or BI or, or any any of that type of thing is you have to challenge those mental models. Mm. And the change management side of it becomes so important because this is literally how people think and, and how they bring things together. And then you get into the, or depending on your point of view, the vicious or virtuous cycle of being in a team you're trying to challenge things and particularly at the Bank of New Zealand I had a number of conversations with the Director of Strategy and a couple with the Director of HR around part of the analytics function was actually Mm. changing people's mind and doing reveals and the nature of that and where I see that playing out now more and more in our field is the nature of data journalism and bridging that gap between say data science and business users and yes. how does that play so so both of those I'd had this foundation if you measure stuff you can make it better and then mm. watched your decision making and probably the next best shock for me was wow. I went into big box retailing which was people selling TVs and fridges and stuff like that but quite a narrow portion of that I was in supply chain and it was my first real aha around maturity levels and data maturity levels. And at the time, the firm I was working for, and this a little while ago, they were the biggest big box retailer in New Zealand, and that was fine. And they gave me this project, oh, we don't really understand 
where all our money's going. We're spending all this money on supply chain. Can you tell us what it was? And I was like, okay. And I went in and my computer was all set up. And, you know, that's a bonus sometimes these days. <laughs> and I think uh, I took half a dozen Excel spreadsheets. I went cut, paste, cut, paste, cut, paste, and then did sort and found the single biggest invoice they'd raised in six months. They'd been billed four times. And no one had picked it up and, and was rife. And, but that connection between procurement and shipping and the products team was mm. so weak. I think I'd been in the, that particular job about two hours and recovered my annual salary. One of those things, and but it's those little gems that give you the credibility that will people will listen if you that's can right. find things you can do. And then the the other thing that staggered me about them, we use the expression "what gets measured gets done," but. I went out, and this has probably been a reoccurring theme for me. I think if you're going to do analytics well, you need to almost take an ethnographic approach and see what's going on, seeing what's under the numbers. And, and I went out to mm. the cross-docking system and was looking at the way they were moving containers. And what they used to do is you would charge for um, shipping based on just a simple cubic area, so height, weight, depth. But what was happening is they were shipping everything on pallets and you put a TV mm -hmm. on a pallet and basically they were measuring the height of the TV, but the depth and the weight was of the pallet it was sitting on. <laughs> and I remember this exactly, the most popular TV we had at the moment, the actual box it came in was 0.419 of a cubic meter. But the way that the replenishment stuff worked, if somebody sold one of those and it was a cross-stocking system in the north of the North Auckland, in Auckland, Invercargill, when we shipped it to Invercargill, we actually wished the shipping cost was more than the gross margin on the product. I was in this wonderful thing where it was a completely new field to me, yeah. but I had the opportunity to go and explore and understand and could do these aha moments and reveal. And fundamentally, that organization, I wasn't the only contributor to this, you know, they, they've changed their supply chain process. As a result, when you start becoming conscious of, of things, you do act differently and you do make decisions differently. But so often it's the data and analytics focal that, that are bringing that narrative to the table so people can think differently. And It's true that the, the data and analytics bring in the different view and the different lens. One of the things that you do so well is overlaying the operational understanding of a business and the understanding of the people on saying that we might measure something, it might look one way, but it might be done completely differently. And we need to go see that for ourselves. It's coming up very strongly in your story. Yeah, it turned into a guiding principle I've probably had now for about 15 years. And it was a back on the back of that supply chain work. When I've run analytics teams, one of the things I've talked about a lot is we'll never embarrass anybody. And you think about where agile's going ah. and psychological safety and things like that. But if you're the ones coming in and putting a dent in somebody's mental model and things like that, you need to almost be gentle. Yes. And then the way you do it, this is not an environment where you want to be vicious because it'll mm -hmm. create defensive behaviors. And I know you and I have both talked to people over the years around how do you influence within an organization. And I tell you, if you walk in and say, sorry, you're a numpty, you're doing this wrong, that's not the way to do it. That doesn't tend to work with influencing. And uh, uh, <laughs> I've certainly 
been accused at times where, where I've, I've got that wrong of having a low EQ or isolating people or stuff like that. But you've got to learn from that stuff and how do you actually connect and present new information at the same time. And then I got into banking and that's a, a weird space in its own. I've worked for a couple of banks in New Zealand. One, uh, the New Zealand's largest bank, which over here is ANZ, which those of you in Australia will know. I think my biggest lesson there was I was working with a couple of very smart women who are good data leaders in New Zealand. And I know you know Ratnish was one of them, Ratnish Siri, who's at uh, CIS now, and uh, Sarah Causey, who's running data management at BNZ. And we basically lined up averages. We didn't want the organization talking averages anymore mm. because we felt it was feeding poor decision making. So we started using desktop sales and we started doing a former linear programming called DEA, Data and Development Analysis, which I think I told you, I talked to a data scientist about it recently and they told me I was old school. Age in this business. <laughs> but effectively, we started measuring performance in different ways. It, we weren't really changing the metrics or anything, but if you're measuring mm. to the frontier on like units or you're measuring in deciles, that in itself changes the whole conversation. And I had a wonderful boss and I was running what was called the business performance function, which is basically a BI type function with a few insight people. And he said to me, your job is to start different conversations. And as a purpose of a role and a mandate of a role, that was certainly my jam. And it was where you could explore. And again, something I wish I still did, Sometimes he suggested I blocked out time, almost dark time every week where I wasn't allowed to use devices. And he said, I, I just Great. want you thinking, I want you exploring. And I think the nature of our business and, and the pace everything works at, I think that quiet time is really important to reflect or, or combine ideas or percolate. But it's so often it's one of the things forgotten. You've got this wave at the moment in mindfulness. And I look at that and I think this is fabulous. And how do I work that in into to your cadence or your routines? And how do you do that? So that was ANZ. And then the wonderful lesson at BNZ was around, for me, around the data value chain and mm -hmm. how to bring data and tech and the business together. And I remember going away to conferences and I, I used to, particularly the trans-Tasman ones, used to often travel with um, then Cat College, but she first Kate now. And we, we'd go along and she'd be in this architecture, tech heavy, running data management. I'd be there in the business from the strategy function, but involved in the retail bank. And people would go about, well, how do you get tech and the business to work together? And I'm like, What's well, pretty easy. You talk <laughs> to each other and you connect and you share ideas. And particularly, oh, this would have been three or four years ago. And I remember mm. sitting in conference in both Sydney and Melbourne and people were going, no, this it doesn't work this way. And I'm like, well, Correct. it has to. We certainly were very purposeful in the data strategy at the bank and saying, you've got to treat it like a data value chain. And the conference you and I were at were a few months ago and this wonderful fad-like labor of it's about the data fabric it's no longer a value chain it's a fabric that's all going to move together i was like somebody turned <laughs> off the computer and said it quiet here and thought that up but good on them i know what they mean <laughs> yeah. um but it's pretty easy stuff and, and I, I think um 
BNZ did that particularly well and, and a really good understanding that we're all working towards the, the same end customer. You certainly had to work mm. on the language. You needed uh-huh. to find a, a common language and bridging that when it can be very technical and architects wanting to talk to me uh, about patterns and microservices and their wonderful language, which is second nature to them. And, and you're like, mm. okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Can you help yeah. me? As a career, it's been fascinating, but I've stuck to the, I love puzzles. I love numbers. I like building stuff. I really yeah. like building stuff and I like learning and teaching. And that's just how it's um, evolved. You could say a wee bit purposefully, but yeah. it's come together. So do you see that as one of the main barriers in when people are trying to link the data value chain? Do you think that where two disciplines come together as part of the value chain, what are some of the reasons that stops people from having a closer interaction? Is it through reasons like this, like not wanting or not spending enough time learning about the other side or trying to develop trust, developing a common language? What would you say are some of the things that you've done that others yeah. might miss? I don't think it's just um, a tech business thing. I certainly found the analytics in the business and I found it with project teams and groups coming together. I, I do think language, common understanding and common goals are the headlight things where you've got to, but to get attachment, a motive att- attachment, you do need a relationship. You can't hold people at arm's length. And I think more and more you've got to work on that and how to do it. I've done some weird things over the year Mm -hmm. to try and break that down. Let me put on my geek hat for a moment. There's a wonderful Star Trek Next Generation episode called Darmok. And um, Picard finds himself on this planet with an alien. They don't understand each other. And the first 20-odd minutes is uh, the two of them figuring out how to communicate with each other. I've played that so many times, trying to bring cross-functional groups together, going, yeah, we're going to spend the first 20, 25 minutes just watching a Star Trek video and then talk about it. But you've got to find ways (laughs) to actually call out what's going on and, and how does that play and how does that work? And I found, particularly in the larger roles, as the bank roles got mm. larger and we we're moving at such pace, it was harder to do that, those types of things, because the cross-functional teams you got with were so broad. So you could start having those conversations with data and analytics, and it said, well, okay, now we need to engage with digital and now with products and now with the compliance teams. And I think one of the risks of mass agile and, and cross-functional workers, where do you actually draw the lines? And I think um, years ago, I was in a risk workshop and we were launching a partnership with government. I think we had 34 people in the room. This is a coordination exercise, just managing the 34 people, let alone <laughs> trying to get a tangible output for it. It's going, okay, here's the list of things we're going to do. So I don't think you can ever underestimate language. And I think as a field, the one that has the most emotive connection, and I love something you posted online recently, um, is AI. People look at the expression AI and it means such different things to other people. And mm. I was once at a session where somebody said, was asked, how would you describe AI to your grandparents? And they're like, oh, I'd put Terminator 2 on in front of them. But I think about, oh, I can't remember when you posted it a few weeks ago, about my AI enabled thermos that can keep yeah. cold, cold and hot drinks hot. You're like, oh, 
oh, this is brilliant. We're out of control here. We really are out of control. So we had to do work. BNZ's not unusual that when you're going and presenting to executive and board, they are very reliant on you making complicated ideas simple and you know because they're mm. making sense of stuff on a learning curve and i was taking it up to the board i think it was a five-page presentation mm. and one of them was what is ai mm-hmm. and i literally when i spoke to that slide i was saying you run the potential in this room that when i say ai to you as a group you all think of hollywood ai at the time, where I think we were building some bots to answer emails or, or something like that. And I said, this is structured machine learning using basic NLP, which I explained to them what machine learning was and what NLP was. This is not going to take down the bank. It is going to answer mm. these emails in this way. <laughs> but I think everyone's on mm. an a different learning curve and you need to think about that and how it works. And one of my better lessons from the strategy work I did was often issues or ideas develop Mm. following a a sigmoid curve or or a normal distribution curve. And you think about how high is the curve going to get and where are you at on the curve? And numerous organizations talk about hype cycles and, you know, how does that play? AI at the moment tends it looks like it's it's certainly it's a, a mainstream expression do people understand what it means if you go to an audience who doesn't work in that field potentially it will be hollywood ai to them because, exactly. because that's what they've been exposed to exactly that's where we're getting the knowledge from so sometimes it's difficult to crack through that preconceived understanding that people might have I definitely want to ask you about some of those challenges. And I think in general, what do you think makes a good CDAO? It's such a huge role. It's such a challenging role. Obviously, very attractive role. A lot of people focus on the technical skills from a discussion, from your journey. Uh, It seems like there's so much more to it. In your view, what are the components of a good CDAO? So I think there's two paths to the CDAO. One is that legacy tech background and the other is the Mm. legacy business and i'm certainly a legacy business but 25 years ago i was installing point of sale systems and so i've had exposure to, to some sort of tech through the way and i think you are certainly coordinating and you're a fulcrum in the organization many organizations all paths lead to data or how does that look like and whether you're running a centralized or a decentralized model people want the data they want and they want to answer questions on their biggest opportunities or biggest problems or sometimes they actually just want to size what their biggest opportunities and biggest problems are that's a key part of the cdao role is getting that dialogue going on what are the components of the mandate and what does it look like but make making sure you've always got in the back of your mind where is the biggest opportunity and where is that or where is the biggest problem and more and more people i talk to in our field prioritization is becoming mm. an early topic if you're not focusing on the size of the price as the strategy yeah. team, if you're not focused on the size of the prize and, and you're constantly firefighting and thinking about, oh, no, this is the squeaky wheel at the moment or this is where the noise is, I need to pivot resource over there, you can uh-huh. get yourself in trouble. And I'm a firm believer in the CDAO is a blend of production and outputs and here's what we're doing, but also production capacity and capability. Yeah. 
how are we building? And I think apart from some of the dynamics around executive teams and facing up to some of their prioritization questions, the most challenging part of the role, and these aren't mutually exclusive dealing with exec in this, is getting the balance right and building your capability and getting things delivered. I think you and I have talked before about what you and I would call a model in production and what a business unit calls a model in production. Very different things. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, I've made my decision. Okay, cool. You go away and make that happen. And <laughs> you're thinking, okay, how's that going to work? So I think uh, the CDAO role, and there's now increasing evidence that it's not a high tenure role, that it's years and then people are churning. I certainly found both the CDAO and the CA role, CAO role as challenging as the head of strategy role. And, you yeah. know, historically, that's been one of those roles where you know it's a high-pressure environment. Um, I'm glad uh, you said that. It's such a tough yeah, role. Yeah, and which means you need to think about almost the mindfulness stuff about how do you switch in and out? How do you look after yourself? What does your relationship network look like? Who do you talk to? How do you, you certainly need to actively manage your longevity and role. That's critical. So I think that's really important, that production, production capability. And I think that the second most important thing is the strategy uh, development and delivery. And I'm certainly biased towards that because it's my background, but I do think it's an important part of the role. I'm of a view, and I'm not the unique in this, is there's three different areas where you've got to think about strategy in, in this field. And one is you're trying to solve three problems. I don't I love the quote, the Thomas Davenport quote around running an information strategy is like playing chess across 15 levels. I'm happy to say that, but I think you find a way to to navigate things. And I think that the notion of cadence becomes really important with your strategy. And I'm a firm believer in a strategy should be taking you to A from A to B. And I'm a firm Mm. believer in it's a strategy to do what? If you can't answer that, you're in trouble. And I look at the three components and the first one being customer expectations, whether they're Mm -hmm. internal or external expectations. And that's your your production, your outputs and how you're managing that. And then you've got your staff capability and where that at and how you're nurturing your team and bringing on. And the third is this wonderful injection of technology. And what my experience is, is the cadence at which the technology is moving is so much faster than the other two. So you need to build something in a strategy where, in my view, context counts to have the malleability to be able to adjust it and and do it. And the way I've historically done that is I certainly do work in horizons and landing zones, so short, Uh medium, long term, and each organization can think about what those horizons will be in different strategy work. I've done short term, anything up to 90 days to a year, again, Uh depending on cadence and how how fast you can implement stuff. But the other thing, because tech is moving so fast, my opinion is you can't do it on your own. And that's why partnering is so important. And at BNZ, we did a couple of things that I thought were really smart. The first was we had a principle-based strategy. Mm-hmm. So we effectively define the envelope and, you know, I think whatever there was, eight to 10 principles, I don't recall. Mm-hmm. But 
when the 10th principle was every set period of time we'll review the strategy because we know things are moving. And then and smart things to try and protect you for emerging issues like AI ethics and things like that. So there was a wonderful guiding principle around customers must trust us with our data like they do their money. You know, wow. as a guiding That's principle a for the strategy, one. you can build in those principles and go, right, okay, if we stay within this envelope, we're going well. But one of the things that was built into the principles and I think is critical is partnering. I think the nature of our field is you need to partner for thought leadership. It needs to be one uh. of the things you partner for. That organization we partnered for data, so what we're going to be our data sources, we're you know, using publicly available data. We partnered for capability, which was often with a vendor or a supplier, third party if we needed to outsource something. Or we partnered for thought leadership. And it was everything's moving so fast and the bank and this is in the well and truly in the public domain, found dream partner in that a small bank or a large bank in New Zealand, but a small bank in a global sense became a global early adopter for Intel. And when you've got someone of that scale and we could talk to them about capability and they were a fabulous partner. They ran sessions with our architects talking about how to configure things and, you know, which is fabulous. I had a wonderful trip where they hosted me up in Silicon Valley and we were playing around with natural language programming at the time. And they said to me, well, that's great that you're doing in-house. If you want to think about market leading and say, well, Apple over there has got 600 data scientists working on NLP and Amazon's probably (laughs) got more. Facebook could be there or thereabout. How long do you think you can stay ahead or are you better off buying that stuff off the shelf or using open source? You appreciate having a partner of the maturity that can do that. And they gave us a couple of wonderful gems. One was around discipline of execution, that as part of your cadence, you need to have your quality built in, you need to think about processes, you need to think about documentation. And again, you think about all the organizations out there that have taken an incremental build to their data builds and are now looking at disconnected warehouses and how do I bring my data together and not having their lineage and not having the metadata and I'm not saying we always got it right but Intel was coaching us on that four or five years ago and saying this is important you need to do that and then they also expose you to frontier stuff like they introduced us to Saffron which was a a firm that been part of the B stage funding and they're looking at associative memory and associative networking that was just fantastic what that could do but they also I was lucky enough they took me to Pivotal who San Fran Agile, mass agile 25 years agile doled up to 11 they call themselves and, yeah. and you're watching a pod and two data scientists sitting side by side writing code together when you partner with someone of that scale that in a legacy that has been there and done that the lessons are so strong and One of the things that I think the CDO or the CDAO or the CAO does now in many of the organizations in our part of the world, I think both New Zealand and Australia, is they're often they're brought in as a subject matter expert Uh. to navigate the portion of the maturity curve that the organization's in. 
So, so that would be the last big tick for this CDO, CDAO type role is you've got the relationships, you've got the prioritization, you've got the strategy and how you manage the strategy. But the last bit is they're often bought into, we're not quite sure what to do. Can yeah. you tell us what to do? And I think those blend together for the role. And given that every single day you're trying to break down perceptions, it's a tough gig. It is a tough gig. And in your case, how did you keep your teams productive as you scaled up? Because you've had teams of over 100 people across the whole value chain from data management, warehouses, analytics, BI, data science, the engineering, the whole gamut, huge teams. So over 100 people, how did you keep them productive and focused at that scale? Not as well as I would have liked. Thank you for the honesty. (laughs) The hardest thing for me is we moved quickly. So we centralized the analytics and the research function and don't underestimate the power of the research function Mm. in the value chain because they bring that ethnographic approach, that proximity to the customers, and they're so powerful in telling the rest of the community, this is what's being said, this is how we're delivering what's turning up. I think that's Mm. a a really powerful part of the value chain. And then board and door strategy that we wanted to move to market leading and analytics. So we pretty much within a year, the analytics function from a number in the low 20s to north of 50. And then it was like, oh, you're doing a good job here, have data as well, which was well (laughs) north of 50. And I think the cadence at which things were moving were particularly hard to lead and manage. And you, I remember having a lot of conversations with my leadership team and you have an absolute dependency on them and getting smart people doing the right things. And I went through a phase, particularly when we were really heavy in some of the data governance work, where I say, I feel like I'm constantly off balance. You don't feel like you've got a stable platform to work from. And I think that's the nature of scaling up that quickly and making it, you know, purposeful decision. This is what we're about. This is how we're going to do things and let's bring it all together. And then it becomes an execution challenge. What we worked really hard to do is develop trust and what does that culture look like? It didn't help in the middle of that we changed chief executive as well. It's one of those other things that you just have to navigate. There's a, a wonderful analogy around in a VUCA world with high velocity uncertainty and stuff like that. It's like standing on the beach and the waves are coming in and they keep coming and keep coming and part of your job as a leader to teach people how to surf. I love that analogy. That's what it felt like, that things were moving so fast. How do you raise above it? And I had a a wonderful head of operations and she in turn had a great risk person, process work admin, getting all that right and thinking of it almost like a, a viable systems model where you've got scanning and you've got people doing stuff, but what are the control systems around that and how you're lifting maturity? And Mm. there's lots of information out there around organization moving through maturity curves. And it almost felt because it was so new and you could look over the fence and see the digital guys were probably a couple of years in front of us about some of their stubbing their toe and their learning curve, thinking about, well, how do you pull this together? Mm. And I think Some of the things we put in place, particularly with the leadership team and the presence of the leadership team, we're thinking about if you're pulling together almost an entrepreneurial type organization, what are the things you need to break down and not trying to have all day leadership meetings and Mm -hmm. 
this wouldn't work from a fabric point of view, but from a value chain, every couple of weeks or whatever cadence it was, okay, here is 90 minutes or two hours where we only talk about the people. Every week we have an ops meeting. Every month we have a strategy meeting. We actively talked around how the governance meeting's going. So as an organization, we had a weekly data governance meeting where stakeholders right. came together and talked as well, where we tried to run the strategy steerco on a quarterly basis. Think hard about cadence and what's happening. And, and again, some of this comes back to the lessons from Intel and the strategy side around if you're doing change management and executing, there's envelopes and, and structures and systems you can put in place to help navigate that and keep things in tight. And I had a wonderful conversation with Angie when she came on board as the CEO of Bank of New Zealand. And she'd been on the board previously, but she said, well, how's scale up going? And I said to her about, look, we've had a bit of a noise around, you know, why are you putting in these op roles and process roles? And she was like, no, absolutely. Yeah, you have to. That when you've got those advocates and understanding that you're working to different horizons and, and you're genuinely building a capability that needs to be sustainable. Having that executive sponsorship is fantastic. And key. Ah, that is awesome. DT, this has been an absolute blast. I do have one last question for you. What is a piece of advice that you would give to people that are in their analytics career at the moment? Something that you've used as a guiding principle, something that can help them have a, have a better career and a, and a better journey? Yeah, you have to keep learning. We talked about earlier a speed and cadence to aspects of our roles where you have yes. to keep learning. And whether it's staying a bridge to technology or developing better relationships or working on your, your soft skills or your, or your communication, you have to keep learning. And as part of that, I think you have to be optimistic. I think you're most more open to learning when you have a positive attitude around what's going on around you. And probably through my career, when I felt that slipping and, and I can feel some of my getting a bit cynical or getting a bit glass half empty, that's when I know I need to make either an intervention with myself to snap myself out of it or I need to think of doing something else. And if you're building a career, you have this, in our field, you have this wonderful opportunity to learn in so many different facets but you have to be open to do it. So it's the cliche growth mindset. It really is how being productive and having production capability, you'll have listeners out there or, or viewers out there will know the way I frame that for a data strategy. I've ripped that off from seven habits of highly effective people. It's yeah. the guiding principle. You need to balance how you're delivering stuff and how you're getting better. That's my gem. Stay open, stay positive and learn every day. That's amazing. DT, you are an incredible leader. I am so impressed with your humility, with your self-awareness, with how much you've been able to push yourself and everything that you've created through your career. It's truly incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, your insights, your perspectives with us today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.
I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also, go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.